Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Patrick M. Kahanick, MD, MCCM. He's a professor and vice chair in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also the editor-in-chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Kahanick is with us today to discuss guidelines for the acute medical management of severe traumatic brain injury in infants, children, and adolescents, the second edition, which was published as a supplement to the January 2012 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Kahanick. It's really an honor to have you. It's my pleasure, Dr. Parker. Um, so, Pat, would you kind of start off with how were the second edition of the guidelines developed? Uh, yes, the initial guidelines, uh, which in and of themselves took a long time to formulate, uh, first appeared in 2003, and uh, there had been over several years, some discussion, say maybe over the last four years or so, some discussion, is there enough new material to put together this new guidelines? And then about two years ago, uh, the group that really shepherds the guidelines, the uh, evidence-based management team at the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center, uh, led by Nancy Kearney, I think had enough input from people to suggest you know, there are several uh, uh, valuable studies that have been published subsequent to the guidelines, and it's time to put together a, a new document. And then over a, a couple of years, uh, uh, the team was uh, assembled, the team was expanded, and uh, the the new chapters were chosen, and the team actually met in New York City, and the the document, which you may or may not know, has been sponsored by the Brain Trauma Foundation, then was, uh, was written, was uh, carefully discussed, and ultimately, uh, after a, a number of iterations, uh, finally uh, was published. So what is different in the new guidelines? Are there new chapters? Are there new people included in the process? What's, what's different uh, since 2003? Uh, quite a number of things. First of all, uh, there, are, uh, there are 17 chapters in this edition of the guidelines uh, with 19 faculty from 12 institutions. Uh, I think the, the, the people involved included uh, uh, some additional representation that wasn't part of the first uh, edition, and this includes now pediatric anesthesiology, child neurology, neuroradiology are all included in, in this guidelines document, and they were a terrific uh, addition to the, uh, to the document. We also had some international representation on the committee. I think that could be even further expanded the next time. Uh, but uh, Robert Tasker, who was in the U.K. when these guidelines were, were written, and also Tex Kassoon uh, from Vancouver, uh, were part of this committee. And so we, we, we do have uh, finally some international representation. A few other uh, things. There were uh, remarkably 27 new papers included. 
Uh, however, uh, quite interestingly, uh, there were 25 papers from the prior uh, edition of the guidelines that were excluded. And um, one of the things that is noteworthy about these kind of guidelines document, the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, uh, is that they're, they're, I think they're quite different than some of the other guidelines that people in SCCM, for example, uh, are the general readerships of critical care and pediatric critical care might uh, be familiar with. Um, one of the things about the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines is they're they're really purely evidence-based. They're unlike, uh, as I as I mentioned, an ACCM or American Heart Association guidelines, in that there there is really no consensus statements uh, or consensus-weighted evidence. Uh, it either is an evidence-based recommendation or it's not a recommendation. And uh, this, these very strict criteria are, are pretty tough, I guess you would say one way to describe it. Uh, for instance, uh, studies cannot mix diseases. In other words, you couldn't have uh, 80 head injuries and 20 meningitis cases and then try to extract out the head injury data unless the paper explicitly separated those. Uh, similarly, uh, you can't mix adults and children in the studies, again, unless the pediatric component was absolutely identified. Uh, and so this, as, as I mentioned, is, is one of the things that's a little different about these type of guidelines. And so there were 27 new papers included. Some 25 papers from the fi prior edition were excluded. Many of those were very old studies that might not have even had Glasgow Coma Scale, for example. I think those are the key administrative, if you would like to call them, components of the new guidelines. There are obviously a number of key changes also, and maybe we will get into them later uh, in, the, in, the, in the discussion. Well, I, th I think it's pretty interesting the way you describe the process. It's really hard to have such emphasis on evidence-based recommendations when so much of w what we do has, in reality, so little evidence. So I'm impressed at the rigor that was applied to developing these guidelines. Well, there's pros and cons to that also. I think it makes it really hard to make as many recommendations as we all want. I think it also can sometimes produce kind of a choppy document in some sense in that uh, we may have only pieces of the story that actually have evidence. And despite the fact that there are many things we use in daily practice that uh, certainly consensus would support, um, in defense of this type of strategy, as, as you are suggesting, it really shows you where the holes are, and it really, I think, helps guide what research and what future investigations need to be carried out. So what did you do with areas that are, as you said, very often part of our daily practice but really don't have evidence? Uh, in essence, they do not get a specific recommendation uh, in, the, in the specific recommendation sections. These, this type of format of guidelines is very interesting in that it really relies on something in the evidence evidentiary table to generate a, a recommendation. And so if there isn't a specific study in the evidence table, there isn't a recommendation on it. 
Uh, that does not mean that we are not willing to discuss those topics in the text. Uh, we certainly do. Similarly, we do not use adult data to develop pediatric recommendation. Once again, though, that doesn't mean we totally ignore the adult literature. We have a section in each chapter on recommendations from the adult guidelines with, with some discussion of the pediatric implications. However, those data are not used to generate specific recommendations in the recommendation section with the goal of, of really having a pure pediatric document. So you mentioned before that there are some um, changes in the, the recommendations for our clinical management. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. Um, I'll start with what I think is one of the most interesting, and it is kind of a, uh, a perfect example of what we've just discussed uh, with regard to the, the way this kind of evidence-based document uh, is generated. Uh, there is a level two recommendation in uh, the, the pediatric guidelines for the use of hypertonic saline uh, for the management of intracranial hypertension. But there's no recommendation even at the level three uh, for mannitol. And I think that's a perfect example. Remarkably, there is a complete absence of clinical studies specifically targeting mannitol use in pediatric TBI. There are a number of adult studies. There are a number of really old studies on the use of, use of mannitol that were mixtures of adult and pediatric patients, for example. But it's quite amazing that a drug that has been used extensively does not really have clinical evidence. Uh, and so, the last time in the in the 2003 guidelines, uh, I believe one or two studies that were really old studies that uh, were included uh, really did not meet rigorous study criteria and the criteria that uh, that were designed for these guidelines, and so they were excluded in this guidelines document. And so that's a perfect example. It's quite interesting. You may or may not be aware that. Actually, on the pediatric side, the, the level of evidence for hypertonic saline is, is really the strongest uh, uh, recommendation on the adult side also for hypertonic saline. So in, in one sense, pediatric critical care and pediatric neurotrauma research has led the way on the resurgence of the use of hypertonic saline. But uh, as, I, as I indicated, I think uh, it's not like we as a guidelines committee felt mannitol was in some way necessarily even inferior. There just wasn't the evidence for it. And so statements in the actual uh, manuscript uh, to that effect are, are present, but a, but a true recommendation is only present for uh, hypertonic saline. Uh, one of the other areas in which there are some changes in the recommendation was in the area of hypothermia. Certainly, that was the area with the most new papers and the highest quality publications. Uh, remarkably, again, however, the, it was also the area that was, I would say, the most challenging because the papers were, were somewhat conflicting in their findings. Uh, Jamie Hutchison's trial, uh, published in the New England Journal, generated a level two recommendation for the avoidance of hypothermia used for 24 hours uh, with rapid rewarming. 
But there also was a level three recommendation based on David Adelson's study and also the Biswas study that uh, was published a number of years ago in, in critical care medicine uh, for the use of hypothermia to control intracranial uh, hypertension as one of the second tier therapies and also as a prophylactic neuroprotectant if used for 48 hours. So you can see that with a, a subject such as this where actually we had several good studies that were carried out. The results were, were somewhat conflicting, although one might argue that the results were based on how the studies were designed and uh, how they were applied. So there's, a, there's another uh, example of, I think, some, some significant changes since the prior guideline. There were also a few other interesting recommendations. Uh, uh, one of the uh, initial guidelines recommendation based, again, on a very small old study which did not hold up was to, to, the, to the current rigor, uh, was uh, the recommendation to provide calories from 130 to 160% of resting energy expenditure. Uh, and uh, so that was eliminated from the guidelines. In other words, TBI is, uh, there, there wasn't evidence to say it's a hypermetabolic disease certainly not at a guidelines-level recommendation. And there also was uh, a new level three recommendation for a threshold of 10 millimeters of mercury if brain tissue oxygen monitoring was used. Uh, and obviously, uh, and I didn't mention in the opening, uh, we had a couple of new chapters, and one of them was on advanced neuromonitoring and uh, another on uh, neuroimaging. And uh, so the advanced neuromonitoring chapter generated a, uh, a guidelines level three recommendation on brain tissue oxygenation. Uh, those, those were some of, I thought, highlights of, of some of the changes. There are some more subtle differences in, in CPP threshold, et cetera, uh, although not, not really major sweeping differences. It sounds like this was a mammoth undertaking and provides us with an enormously useful document, but stop short of giving us an algorithm of care for kids with TBI. That's a really good point, Margaret. And uh, it is one of the things that we are taking up. You know, in the last guidelines document, we published an algorithm of care. And the Brain Trauma Foundation approach on both the pediatric and the adult side for this has been to I would say, wait for, for an algorithm that really can be evidence-based might be a, a way to summarize it. That's not to say that an algorithm isn't in the works. Uh, on the pediatric side, we are going to generate an, an algorithm that is both evidence and consensus-based, and the exact approach to that is, is being discussed uh, right now. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I do believe that that will be one of the future initiatives is a algorithm. Uh, again, and it will have to include some consensus because there just isn't enough evidence. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I hope to see that uh, in the near future. Where else do we need to go in the future? Well, I think uh, the one of the most interesting conclusions uh, was that uh, 
the field of and, and it's interesting we didn't conclude this in 2003 because I think that was one of the places that we fell short in 2003 despite seeing 27 new studies subsequent to 2003 one of the one of the, the problems is that we don't have uh, something that for example the cardiac arrest uh, investigative uh, approach has and that is an Utstein style data template and and that that's been a real limitation uh, uh you know a perfect example would be if you look at intracranial pressure in some studies it's reported as the peak in another study it's reported as the mean uh in another study it's reported as uh you know kind of the weighted icp over a number of days and uh, and in one center, a threshold of 15 is used, and in most, the threshold of 20 is used. And in a few papers, it's age-adjusted. And so you can see the, the challenge that we'd faced uh, with just taking uh, something like intracranial pressure. And, uh, and so we really feel that one of the key things that could advance the field of pediatric TBI is some type of common data element template. And I know a number of groups, there are a number of initiatives out there right now in pediatric TBI and on the adult side to try to do a better job on this because that is one of the areas I think could really help to clarify some of the fog that's out there in terms of, of generating recommendations on, on some of these basic points like ICP and CPP management and uh, PBTO2 management, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's, that's one of the things that will, will really uh, help us uh, for the next guidelines. I, I think another is that, uh, as I've already alluded to, we really need uh, studies and two kinds of studies, I think. We need studies looking at new therapies uh, but we, I think, as badly, if not uh, to a greater degree, need studies examining our current therapies. And whether those studies are purely descriptive and could at least provide us some level three evidence, uh, particularly if they could be done in a multi-center fashion, or wh whether they represent uh, an NIH-funded comparison of of say two or three strategies targeting intracranial hypertension, uh, or whether they represent a comparative effectiveness trial uh, across multiple centers with all the therapies and, and interventions different uh, centers use. Um, I don't think the from my eye that uh, any of them would be bad. I think we could use all three types of evidence uh, and uh, you know, perfect example is something like sedation. We have, it, I mean, it, it's just used obviously on a daily basis uh, uh, as one of the ways people respond to a say a spike in intracranial pressure. And yet we have no data other than case reports and a couple of other small series on something as fundamental as that. And I think to some extent, some people in the literature almost feel like, well, we already know the answer. And yet, I think it's pretty clear that we don't. And if you look at something like narcotics, it's really remarkable, uh, something like fentanyl or morphine or take a benzodiazepine. 
all you find in the literature are case reports that show that in some cases, blood pressure decreased after administration and it caused a rebound uh, spike in intracranial pressure, presumably from cerebral vasodilatation. And so uh, the only small case reports are negative against the use of, of something like sedation. And so I think we think we know a lot more than we do. And some good studies on, on the bread and butter of current management uh, would be really helpful. I, I think mannitol probably falls into that category as well. Oh, mannitol, barbiturates, uh, glucose, and nutrition, uh, perfect examples uh, you know, just comparing two or three um, nutrition regimens, uh, I think, could be really uh, uh, informative. Uh, and a similar uh, story is emerging on the adult side also with something like glucose uh, based on some small series suggesting very divergent findings. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the pediatric front, those could be even more you know, you know, more important, obviously, long-term outcome is a, is a huge issue in pediatric TBI. So we have made a lot of progress over the last seven or eight years, but we have a really long way to go. That's certainly a good way to put it. And, uh, uh, but I think we've, we've done a better job at identifying what the really key questions are. And I think it's pretty clear that the uh, monitoring tools are, are becoming better and uh, and also imaging and other uh, techniques such as that are are really advancing the field and i think one of the other things that's pretty clear is that traumatic brain injury has really moved to the public eye and uh, whether it's due to sports concussion blast injury from improvised explosive devices uh child abuse from abusive head trauma and the shaken baby syndrome or you know what we've always uh, addressed or dealt with uh, the you know the the average motor vehicle accident or child hit by a car, I think the awareness of TBI now is is somewhat in a golden era, and uh, support for research in TBI is is really seeing a boost, and I think all of these are going to help. Uh, to give us some even better answers, uh, and hopefully this guidelines document can serve as a as a basis for uh, for helping direct some of these studies. I think we've also gotten better at recognizing the need for evidence and supporting what we already know, and that we've opened our minds a bit to research in some of the sort of standard things that because that's the way we always do it. So the combination of recognizing the problem and recognizing the need and being more open to uh, research on the standard dogma really opens the door for tremendous progress in this area. No, I agree. Um, I think that's a really good point. And what we know and what we think we know are really uh, sometimes eye-opening. Uh, I, I think a perfect example is the drug ketamine. You know, ketamine was kind of taboo in all of neurocritical care based on well, studies, I'd say, in the, in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s uh, out of neuroanesthesia where uh, its use uh, in patients with brain tumors led to some intracranial hypertension. And so it got immediately kind of uh, put uh, into a... 
automatically deleterious category kind of uh, axed from all of neurocritical care. And it's, a, it's an example of a drug now that is getting some really interesting looks uh, in the area of uh, refractory status epilepticus, for instance, and even in, uh, in intracranial hypertension management and also uh, some interest in the, the spreading depression, uh, which is another mm-hmm. spreading depression waves passing through the injured brain. And that's just a perfect example where, you know, I think that certain interventions can get categorized and really never explored. And uh, so... You know what we know and what we what, what we, we think th- we know are, are are sometimes at odds. Yes, indeed. Uh, do you have any final comments you'd like to make, Pat? I don't. I uh, I guess I would just say I look forward to additional trials, and I know here in Pittsburgh, our uh, neuro pediatric neurocritical care service is one that. Uh, is uh, pursuing a number of uh, areas, uh, and uh, I'm hopeful to see that this is happening in a, a number of centers as really the whole concept of pediatric neurocritical care, whether it's in trauma or cardiac arrest or stroke, is really beginning to emerge as a, a bit of a new discipline. And I think that's another potential uh, development that could yield dividends. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Pat. Great, Margaret. It's always nice to uh, talk with you. We have been talking with Dr. Patrick M. Kahanek from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about the guidelines for acute medical management of severe traumatic brain injury in infants, children, and adolescents, the second edition, published as a supplement to pediatric critical care medicine in January 2012. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.